0: So welcome to Free Observer and uh, welcome to you, Mark Ivanu, all the way from Texas, I believe.
1: Thank you, Casper. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Mark, um, you're the founder of uh, an organization or, or or a movement. I mean, you, you tell me afterwards, what is the correct description for it? That uh, is a revision, if you like, or, uh, and... Uh, a new development of the Republican uh, movements and the Republican uh, political philosophy. Can you, but before we delve into that, uh, perhaps you can uh, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and who you are and uh, where you are, uh, your biography and, and where your interest in politics stems from.
1: Sure. Absolutely. So I was born in uh, Kissimmee, Florida, lived there for about five years, went to Portugal for four years. My mother's from there. And then came back to Florida for one year and then relocated in Austin, Texas for about 18 years. I did my undergraduate studies at Texas State University in San Marcos, which is very close to Austin, Texas, and then eventually went to law school in Houston, Texas, South Texas College of Law. And that's kind of where I started getting more politically active, more politically involved, and also noticing this difference between the grassroots, regular working people, and then the more establishment, elite types.
0: And that's really relevant also from the political aspect in terms of how the parties have evolved and how, let's say, the establishment political class has evolved. Is is that right?
1: Right. So I, I noticed that it's kind of a, a fissure or a divide that's been there for decades, I mean, throughout my whole lifetime. It, was, it just wasn't very pronounced. It wasn't very discussed. But you, you always had this kind of divide between regular folks and the elites. And I think when uh, President Trump ran for office, it just became more pronounced. People always said uh, he was really divisive. I don't think he was divisive. I think he was just telling the truth and pointing out that the divide was there, which brought attention to it.
0: Yeah, I mean, we will get to Trump in in the next se- sequence. I should say we'll probably do two episodes because we've got so much to cover in terms of uh, also w- what conservatism and uh, means and how it's evolving. Whether there's a new kind of uh, conservatism emerging, um, and and we'll get into the whole Trump presidency and what he represents uh, at a at the next episode. But but maybe explain to to uh, a European audience. Uh, we Obviously, hope there's going to be both Americans and Europeans, but then we, uh, we, re- you know, for some it's a revision, and for others it's learning something new. But if you can just sort of describe, uh, these establishments uh, and how they differ from, uh, um, let's say the grassroots or the original intention of, of elect- elected uh, representatives, and maybe, maybe in in, in that regard, also just talk about this rhino uh, concept, which for many is, uh, is an alien notion.
1: Sure. So yeah, establishment is in both parties. I think uh, people, especially conservatives and Republicans are surprised to find how many establishment Republicans there are as well, who vote in line with the Democrats a lot of the times. Um, essentially, they are known to serve corporate interests, uh, special interests, um, whether that's uh, foreign countries where there's an uh, NGO operating and they're getting some kind of kickback, whether it's pharmaceutical companies, uh, whether it's a military contractor. And so they're voting to go to war because their buddy is a military contractor who's going to get uh, billions of dollars out of it, and they get some kind of kickback. And so uh, they're running for office, spending millions of dollars just running for a position that pays you know $200,000 a year. And so that lets you know that they're actually it's an investment for them and they're making a lot of money by being in office. And so that's kind of they're serving not their constituents who elected them, they're putting these special interests ahead of that. Uh and that's and then you see that across whether it's in war, whether it's uh, immigration, not securing the border, uh, they're they're serving, they're not serving their constituents. And so the grassroots candidates, the more nationalist candidates are putting the people, their constituents, in front of those special interests. So while they may take some money here and there from different groups, they're still beholden to the people. Uh, they they want to secure the border. They want to look out for the workers. Uh, they're against illegal immigration. Uh, they want to curtail some legal immigration that may be affecting American workers. Uh, and they're also not voting to go into these endless wars. Uh, and they don't have these military contractor buddies who are giving them kickbacks. Mm.
0: I think, um, I mean, I I think, unfortunately, uh, on an international scale, I mean, we're seeing it more and more in Europe as well, how corporate interests are encroaching upon the political scene. But I mean, it's been very pronounced uh, in the US for a long time. Um, But I guess, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, that tendency has really strengthened in terms of at least the sums of money that we're talking about. Not that I want to uh, you know, just call out the the, uh, the, the Democrats. But uh, the latest thing I read was that Nancy Pelosi, because they have to disclose their portfolios, is now worth something in the region of $100 million plus. And this is from someone who is earning $172,000 a year, I think. I mean, it's it's noteworthy, isn't it? That's, <laughs> that you as an elected representative can become that wealthy.
1: Right, it's absolutely obscene. Um, yeah, also, that's a better phrase for it. <laughs> yeah, uh, almost, uh, frankly, I think it's nefarious in a way. Uh, I know Nancy Pelosi gets a lot of insider information from companies prior to, for example, a merger, so she can easily invest into stocks for that company that's about to merge, and then she makes uh, millions of dollars out of it, sometimes billions.
0: I used to do that as a hedge fund manager.
1: Right, exactly. And so she has that insider information, and so... Uh, She does pretty well. And a lot of people in Congress do too. It's not just her, but she is particularly egregious about it. Um, And that's exactly what I mean is that you'll find a lot of the more conservative uh, national populist candidates are not making money in politics. Uh, In fact, they're spending a lot of their own um, sometimes, but also they they make enough to obviously be able to run for office and be there. But uh, compared to these establishment types, they do not have the same money. Uh, You saw that with Hillary Clinton, for example, um, giving speeches, getting paid uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars for a speech. Meanwhile, President Trump was getting a lot of grassroots donations um, and also some donations here and there from big companies, but nothing compared to these establishment Democrats. And was that – was this – the realization that sort of
0: woke you up to politics uh, or, or where did that stem from? And we'll, we'll delve deeper into all the things you just mentioned, but I'm curious as to where your sort of political awakening, when, when it came and, and the reasons behind it.
1: Sure. Well, I have to thank uh, former President Obama for the political awakening. Uh, once I started following politics, so I thought he was- For the wrong reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, and I understand there's probably uh, a lot of Europeans out there who are fond of him. Uh, especially if you're only getting a certain side from the mainstream media, you'd probably think he was great. Um, but that's when I kind of started getting involved because I thought the same thing. I thought uh, he sounds pretty conservative. He wants to uh, lower the debt because we were going into massive debt as a country. And th- th- uh, sorry,
0: this is when he was running for office? Or? Right, when, he was, when he
1: was initially running for office, right. um, he, is, he was sounding very conservative. Um, and I thought, okay. And also he's, there's a big uh, hoopla about, you know, he's, he's half black, so maybe we can end racism. We just vote for him, and we put that behind us. I think a lot of Americans thought the same thing. Uh, once he got into office, he did a 180. I know that's a common complaint of politicians. They talk a lot, and then they don't do what they said. Uh, but for me, that was when I was starting to get involved, and I felt a little betrayed because I was actually going to go vote for him. I didn't end up voting for him, but I was going to, that, at least that first time he ran and um, once I saw that, I saw it as a betrayal to the American people and just a huge ruse uh, from what he was saying. He did a full 180, uh, brought in a lot of uh, increased the, the governmental power over the people. Uh, he did these executive orders that were unprecedented. Um, he also brought in the. Uh, can
0: you can you talk for for you know an audience that may not be familiar with these executive orders because I mean Trump did quite a few as well of a very different kind. Um, but And Biden has attempted to, uh, some say illegally. Uh, but can, can you mention some of the ones that he did and, and, and what that is?
1: Sure, I think probably the, the most uh, well-known and notorious one would be on the illegal immigration. He, did the, uh, he brought forth the Dreamers and basically said, we're not going to deport these people even though they're illegal uh, immigrants. And basically, the executive order is it's not actually uh, legislation, it's not a law, it's kind of an executive fiat, where uh, as long as the president's in power, it'll stay there. When a new president comes in, it's easy for that new president to undo that executive order.
0: It doesn't require a vote of any kind.
1: Right, it doesn't require a vote, doesn't have to go through the con- uh, the, the Congress, uh, basically it's just an uh, executive fiat. And so it's not written on paper, it's kind of, I mean, it's written on paper, but it's not... It's not solid, the foundation of it. So it's but like it's a subject law.
0: to Supreme Court and the, the legal system. Supposedly. Right. So they
1: can get uh, a president who issues executive order can get sued on it, and it'll have priority to the Supreme Court, and they'll deal with it there. But it skips the legislative process. Right.
0: And which, so immigration was one of them, and that was naturalizing illegal immigrants, for example?
1: Correct, yeah. It was basically uh, deferring deportation, um, keeping them in the country, uh, giving them kind of residency status. And um, basically now the now dreamers are all grown up. It was, it was supposed to be uh, people under the age of 18. Now they're all grown up and they're still here. And so basically it was a way to bring in a lot of new uh, citizens, turn these illegal immigrants into citizens in a way. And, you know, I don't want to delve too much into
0: Obama politics because that's not where you're here. But since it's such a major, major issue uh, and I know, particularly for Texas, you m- many uh, of them are heading there, which is kind of dest- potentially destabilizing. Uh, you know, the the, uh, the the state, both politically, but also uh, economically, to some extent, and and in terms of um, uh, work availability and so on and so forth. I mean, at an extreme level, it reminds me a little bit, if I can draw a political parallel, to bleeding Kansas, where you had all kinds of voter electoral shenanigans. And people went from Nebraska into Kansas that made them upset because they now suddenly were voting, but they were actually citizens of another state. And, and that's obviously what sort of kickstarted the whole, what ultimately became the Civil War. But that immigration issue, both for historical reasons, because there are memories associated with it, but also in, in the current state of affairs is, is, is a major current issue. And I'm not sure that many people are familiar with just how profound it is.
1: Yeah, so it's uh, not very well covered by the mainstream media. So no. um, people who aren't following alternative media sources or for example, people in different countries over in Europe uh, may not be well aware of it, but the Southern border is a unprecedented crisis there right now. It's um, hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants there Uh, And they're not trying to hide. They actually purposely came to the border and said, hey, I'm here. Uh, Take me in. It's the Biden administration. Uh, And so it's a disaster down there. And I know uh, Governor Abbott, uh, the governor of Texas, has been slow to act. Uh, He has the authority to prevent it, to seal it, secure the border, but he's asking permission from the federal government. And so Texans are not happy about that. Uh, I think the Democrats are more than happy to have all the illegal immigration they can they can get especially from south america because they believe that those people once they are able to vote will vote democrat and by and large they do so they're correct about that and so yeah the republicans uh the governor doesn't wake up soon i think we're going to have a lot new a lot of new democratic voters and it's going to kind of sway things i think i know the democrats have been eyeing texas for decades if they can only turn texas blue they will pretty much win every single national election from here on out.
0: So do you see how
1: my historical uh, analogy or
0: drawback actually uh, does make some degree of sense?
1: Yeah, you're spot on. In fact, Californ- California poured in millions of dollars when Beto O'Rourke was running for office here because they really desperately wanted to the change. Yeah.
0: There's also a lot of immigration coming from from California itself, now that you mention it, it's, uh, people fleeing the what some people refer to as tyranny, um, and they're all moving to Texas. I mean, there's famously, of course, Tesla has uh, relocated their headquarters. Um, uh, but I think they're literally in the hundreds, if not thousands of major corporations that have changed from California, partially because of the immigration, but other reasons as well, of course, taxation, et cetera.
1: Right. They make a lot more money here and they're also. Do we have the, the conservatives who are fleeing the tyranny and we call those political refugees, then you have people who are fleeing the, the taxes, but still vote the same way. We call those political invaders. They're trying to change the, the nature of the state into being a, from a red state to a blue state. And so we're kind of cautious. that conservative folks aren't necessarily excited about uh, large big tech companies coming here and bringing their workers because it could also mean a change. In the way the demographics vote,
0: and taking a step back, we sort of kickstarted this uh, that 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 whole uh, sequence. Um, going back to this um, differentiation between, you know, the elites as you call them of the parties, which seems to be more representatives of themselves, is what what you were saying, and we're seeing this everywhere. And the accusation of this is, yeah, it's universal. Um, and then the new movements that are occurring, which is kind of a reaction towards these people whose, as you say, financial uh, and, of course, political interests are being served in big government and and government uh, and a government role in perpetuity. so how how did you envisage in terms of what you're doing, what what is it that needs to happen other other than just kicking these people out of office uh, What, what sort of changes is it that you advocate?
1: Sure. So to give a little background about uh, my organization, so it's a, it's Republicans for national renewal, uh, RNR for short, it's a political nonprofit. And the mission of the nonprofit is to push the Republican party away from the, the establishment, the elites and more towards the grassroots, America first working class people. And so that means taking over the Republican Party from the grassroots level up. So at the local, state and federal levels. And so you're right, it's not just getting the establishment people out of office. It's replacing them with the more uh, national populist minded folks who have the interests of the people at heart, as opposed to themselves in special interests. And so we want to kind of help build that infrastructure within the party so that when we do have a uh, President Trump, for example, or President DeSantis, someone who is that uh, grassroots. And for those
0: people who don't know who DeSantis is, he is from your home state.
1: Yes, he's the governor of Florida, and he's doing great work over there, and very much in line with uh, President Trump's agenda and the national populist movement. And so, yeah, we want to build that infrastructure within the party so that when one of those people do become president or do have uh, elected office of high power, they can not be impeded as much because President Trump as you you know, and others may know as well, he was impeded by a lot of people in his own party. These uh, rhinos, Republicans in name only, they were fighting him. So
0: that's what the acronym stands for, I right? Think. So yeah, I when
1: think... people hear "rhino," uh, it's not the rhinoceros, although we do joke about that. It's uh, Republican in name only. And so yeah, we want to have that infrastructure within the party that will support a national populist candidate who may get elected, as opposed to somebody who. We'll always be fighting on this and you'll have that constant perpetual divide we want to make that divide lesser when you have more national populist people in office
0: and i suppose that also links to uh, to the constitution and reviving as i see it the the original intentions of the constitution again in the in the next episode we're going to delve deep into constitutional history and talk about that um but i think that's one of the things that trump was always referring to there was a lot of scaremongering that he was going to be a, an emperor and dictator and take over everything, whereas even in the States, I mean, this is something that really woke me up to how misrepresented this was in the media, that when you had all these various riots, notionally on the back of of, um, of the Floyds uh, incident and, and supposedly led by Black Lives Matter, although I think there were more nefarious influences at, at, at work there, what what um, what you saw there is his refusal to to send troops, and he threatened it, but he left it up to the states individually because the people of that state were the ones who should retain the ability to kick out the leaders who who are not serving their interest and in representing them. And I actually thought when when I realized this, this is very admirable. This is the way you know I just did politics at university. This is how I remembered the, the the constitution was drawn up precisely to allocate local responsibility in order that uh, the people have a meaningful ability to influence things in terms of how they're governed.
1: Yeah, Casper, you're exactly right. Um, President Trump dialed back regulations uh, for every new regulation. I think he had a rule is for every new regulation, two or three must be removed. Uh, not only that, during the uh, uh, pandemics, uh, so-called pandemic with uh, the China virus, he um, he could have done executive action, taken executive action, done executive orders to uh, as far as what happens within the states, but instead he deferred to the governors of every state. He had the vice president, uh, since people in his, in his administration, contacted them, working with them, giving them what they would ask for, but he did not step in and assert his authority. And so, yeah, just with the riots, uh, with the pandemic, everything else. He was actually the least authoritative, authoritative president uh, we've had in a long time. And yeah, that's how, was, that's how the system was designed. Was the states have their own sovereignty, and he actually respected that a lot. Arguably, maybe even too much at some times, but uh, he definitely was in line with the uh, the founding documents.
0: Yeah, I I mean I I, I concur. Uh, but if you if you were following the news media, the establishment media, whatever you want to call it, media, mainstream media and Denmark, Germany, wherever, UK, I mean, <laughs> you would be served exactly the opposite story, which just didn't hold up to reality. And I mean, we've, we've been here a lot in the recent past one and a half, two years. Um, but I think d- Trump was very emblematic where people came to realize subsequently that there was so much misrepresentation in terms of the portrayal uh, of the presidency. And with that, I mean, I've, I've obviously looked into many of the, um, uh, the main uh, subjects and areas of uh, focus that you have and, and the ones that you are advocating. And many of those have a striking resemblance to some of the things that featured very prominently uh, in, 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 uh, under Trump, or the things he wanted to um, introduce. Can, can you talk about them? So we've had immigration. Just, just tell us briefly about um how you see immigration? Because you are a nation formed by immigrants, and I think you you don't want to change that, but you just want to change the way it's conducted at the moment. Is that right?
1: Right. And so you know, it depends on the situation. Obviously, um, I think historically we were open to you know uh, for uh, immigrants of good character who mm-hmm. want to make a better lives for themselves. Didn't want to come here to take, but wanted to come here to give, contribute and just have a better life for themselves in general. Um, And then since then, uh, immigration has developed, and now we have a lot of people coming here not to contribute or give or because they love the country. In fact, many times they despise the country and its people, and they just want to take. Um, Our legal immigration has been um, some of the most generous immigration policies, I think, in the world, taking in over a million a year. Uh, We give out a lot of H-1B visas. And uh, people always joke around saying, oh, you're worried about immigrants taking your jobs. Well, maybe you should uh, get a better education. Maybe you should get into a different area. Well, uh, a lot of illegal immigration actually undercuts uh, the American worker. For example, uh, H-1B visas with uh, tech jobs. Uh, My dad's a software engineer. If, uh, say, an an immigrant from India comes over, uh, they'll be willing to take much less money than my dad would. And so you have a lot of big big tech companies who support, obviously, legal immigration, sponsor these visas, and they're getting huge benefits out of it because they can underpay and that leaves the American worker without a job. And so uh, now with the southern the crisis at the southern border, illegal immigration, and then with the legal immigration still unchecked for the most part, uh, we're looking at promoting an immigration moratorium, which would be like a temporary hold on all immigration so we can assimilate the ones who are here, uh, make sure kick out the bad characters, the criminals, the people who want to be here and are contributing, help them out, make sure that they're well off before we bring in more. And eventually, you can have an ordered system where we bring in uh, some good people, um, but we don't want to just have out of control immigration. We don't want to undercut the American worker, and we certainly never want to support illegal immigration.
0: Yeah, and that links, I suppose, also to uh, bringing back manufacturing and jobs uh, from overseas, which which uh, quite presciently also linked to the whole supply chain, which uh, which that guy again, Trump, was talking a lot about, and I think a lot of people are having to eat a humble pie now who accused him of not understanding how. important you know, global traders, and he got it all wrong, and it works perfectly well. There are no issues, but leaving leaving that aside, we'll do that with a with a cheeky smile, Uh, a self satisfied one, I think, uh, rightly so. But um, um, on last point of on the um, on the immigration, so this new crisis package that has just been passed, which is this monumental tome of legislation that nobody's. Red because it would take you something like 50 years if you spent three minutes on each page, hence the need for crises all the time, I suppose, in order to get federal spending up and allocating contracts vis-a-vis what you said earlier before, which serves certain uh, certain figures uh, more than others. But But there, one thing I picked up on was whilst they refused the Christmas check for those people who have been hurt by the COVID lockdowns, i.e., citizens of the US, I think it was Nancy Pelosi who was suggesting that these immigrants' families who'd been separated should be receiving a check of, and I'll hold on to your hats, $400,000. Am I, I'm not completely insane, right? Although it sounds it.
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, $450,000 to the families who have been separated at the border. The most insane thing I I think I've heard yet out of this administration, and that says a lot. Um, It's also ironic because this administration is also separating the families at the border, you just don't hear about it Mm. in the fake news media. That was my
0: next question, yeah.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it's happened uh, under Obama, under Trump, and under this administration. And so to uh, create what you think is a problem, I don't think it's a problem, obviously it's just enforcing the law, But uh, the Democrats think it's a problem to do this. They uh, facilitated this so-called problem, and now they want to go ahead and pay these people for the problem they created in the first place. And not just a small sum of money. I mean, you just like you pointed out, four hundred thousand. I think it's four hundred fifty. The total number. Um, That's. I mean, that's uh, what a lot of people make after you know a decade of working, um, if you're a working-class person, and so. It's, yeah. Frankly, it's a crime against the American people. And then uh, talk, talk, talk me through some of the other
0: uh, main issues. I mean, there's international commerce, infrastructure. There's a whole raft of different things.
1: Right. So we're we're R and R, my political nonprofit, profit is strongly against trade deals that undermine the sovereignty of the country. Um, who make that make it easier for. Uh, legal immigrants to come in and undercut workers' wages um, that kind of uh, basically rip us off. We're getting a horrible deal. Uh, President Trump was great about that, as you know. Um, so, yeah, I think trade should always have in mind the American people. To me, it's similar. So I practice law. Um, if you're negotiating on behalf of your client, you don't care about anything else but your client's best interests. Now, it may sound good to you. Maybe... Uh, you're gonna get your attorney's fees out of it, but it's not about your fees. Your client comes first and their interests come first. Uh, not you know, thinking about someone else or a future client, um, or this might help out a past client I had because I represented this company. And so if I make this deal, maybe it's not good for my current client, but it'll help me out in the end. Um, no, I think for uh, trade deals should be always with the American people, particularly the American worker at heart. Prior to any other interest or any other country,
0: and why have they been so undermined? Is it, is it this elitist uh, kind of disgust for the ordinary person, uh, a dismissal, disregard of them, uh, mixed with corporate interests that are increasingly
1: globalizing? Right, it's uh, increasingly globalizing, and also kind of what we talked about a little earlier was the establishment and how they have uh, their hands. In with a lot of corporations, and so, um, you know, the a lot of corporations also help out with those trade deals. They'll say, you know, "Here's what would help us. If you can make this happen, then we'll be set, and we'll give you a little kickback." And so they go into these trade deals with that in mind. And so to them, whether the other, you know, the American worker suffers or not, is not really much of a concern. It's more of what can they get out of this, what can their uh, corporate friends get out of this, and um, what's going to kind of increase that globalization which is what we're against is we want to keep the sovereignty of america uh, and not kind of become this global union we don't want kind of the eu situation over here we want to stay sovereign
0: mm. and which which other uh sort of big focal as i think maybe maybe one additional comment before we, we touch on the next one and this relates back to you know, corporate interests and both on trade policies and, and sponsorships and so on and so forth. Um, and I mentioned Nancy Pelosi's enormous increase in wealth in the last, I think it's only in the last eight or 10 years that that increase has occurred. But um, there's a couple of people who interestingly have been following um, the portfolios, the, you know, the, the, the stocks and, and bonds portfolios of uh, congressmen because they of course have to be disclosed and they have to be managed externally and uh, and i think uh, it was mentioned in the ft that this would be the by far the best performing hedge fund ever if you could mirror the trades of uh, of the uh, of, of the portfolios of the congressmen so quite clearly they are not astute investors but they seem to have an enormous amount of knowledge about what's going to be legislated on prior to it happening
1: Right, yeah, so they get a lot of inside information. Uh, they get told about uh, mergers before they happen. And so while it's arguably not legal, um, they're allowed to do it. And so they, uh, they make a lot of money being in office. Um, I know that, uh, for example, uh, John McCain, when he was running for office, he spent millions of dollars on his campaign for a position that paid, I believe, 200,000 a year. And so that tells you that for him, spending that million dollars is well worth it on his campaign because once he's elected, well, he's going to make a lot more than that. And, yeah, I think it goes against the founding principles, which was uh, you go into office to serve the people, not to enrich yourself. But you're seeing the exact opposite of that, uh, especially in these, yourself. But you're seeing the exact opposite of that, uh, especially in these. Um, that's obvious, but uh, these people, it seems like they're kind of running an investment scheme as opposed to just a campaign to serve the people. Yeah.
0: Are you are you seeing? If you if you don't know, you know you do, that that's okay. But uh, is your sense that the same disillusionment is happening on the other side as well, i.e., amongst the Democrats?
1: Yes, actually, uh, funny you, you mentioned that. Uh, I think there's uh, kind of there was a populist movement on the left side with Bernie Sanders. Um, I think there was a lot of working class folks who were kind of on the left. They were tired of the establishment. Uh, they were supporting Bernie Sanders. And actually, uh, between President Trump and Bernie Sanders, there's some overlap in that populist notion of protecting the American people and putting them first, especially on trade and immigration. I think Bernie Sanders was also in line with us when it came to that. Uh, he said, we need to protect the American working class. We need to support the middle class. We need to be careful about your immigration. We need to stop illegal immigration. I mean, he said all this a long time ago. Now he might have changed his opinion. But uh, back then, that's where he stood on that issue. And so I think uh, the left was also very disillusioned when Democrats schemed to get Bernie Sanders out of the running for presidency in favor of Hillary Clinton. And they paid off Bernie Sanders to go ahead and endorse Hillary Clinton, even though he pointed out that she was uh, probably one of the worst candidates. She was establishment. Um, He was right about all of that. And then he switched, you know, changed his tune. But I think uh, a lot of, not a lot, but some of the Bernie Sanders supporters who were populist regular working class people came over to president trump and president trump did appeal to them he said you know hey uh, bernie sanders got screwed over by the establishment and by hillary clinton vote for me and i agree with some of the things that bernie sanders agrees with but that gives me i mean that gives at least me hope because you know
0: n- no one movement is is ever going to achieve you know a profound disruption of uh, how the incumbent structure is uh, is is built Especially when it's as dense and as powerful, and in terms of yeah money and and experience as it is, but the fact that both sides are, are experiencing the same disillusionment means that perhaps you know we can we can meet at 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 some level at least and agree on things needs to change, and then we can agree to disagree once we're elected, and uh, and, and we'll figure it out. Is, 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 is there a, an element of optimism on the horizon?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, you probably see a similar situation with the EU. I'm sure there's a lot of regular Europeans who are not really happy with what the EU's been doing and the policies they've been setting. Uh, likewise here, yeah, I think there's uh, a lot of Democrats who are regular folks, especially here in Texas. And just for your audience members who may not know, Texas is, even the Texan liberals are considered uh, moderate conservatives compared to, for example, California liberals or New York liberals. Uh, Texan liberals still support Second Amendment uh, gun rights, for example. So um, they're a little a little better in that sense. But um, they'll say that they see the problems with the establishment and how uh, tyranny is coming, coming up to the forefront. But they also don't want to vote for someone like President Trump because they think he's mean. So that's an unfortunate part where they they realize there's a problem, they don't like it, but they're hoping for uh, another Bernie Sanders, for example. I think there is a hope of optimism to see that uh, even regular folks are waking up to critical race theory and how bad that is, um, to the uh, COVID tyranny, which is still happening in uh, New York, for example, vaccine passports, uh, vaccine mandates within companies which is also a hot topic within Republicans, uh, some Republicans say, well, you can't infringe on a company's right to do what they want. But other Republicans, such as myself, the more uh, national populist Republicans say, wait a minute, this is too far. This is, uh, even corporations shouldn't be allowed to impose a vaccine on people. So it's a controversial issue, but I think that there's a lot of regular folks who are not necessarily politically active who are becoming aware, maybe, uh, Voting now against things and going to these hearings um, and getting involved, so yeah, there is a sense of optimism. But going back to this sort of gaping
0: divide between the the, the elites of of the party and the corporate affiliates, media connections, and so on and so forth, um, I think a lot of people in Europe will be very surprised because we've always associated corporate interests. Uh, and that corruption at, at, at that level with the Republicans, you know, we've always fought sort of big oil military contracts to be inherently uh, bound up with Republicans. But we've just been through a number of anecdotal stories about egregious, um, you know, self-enrichments via government positions. And it seems that there's been, There's been a bit of a shift that the Democrats have suddenly become extremely (laughs) corporate interested. Uh, Is that something you can put a put a little bit of color on? What what lies behind that? Is that Silicon Valley, California? How did Wall Street suddenly become so Democrat? I mean, I've, I've always thought it would be Republican.
1: Yeah, well, you know, the, the fake news media does a good job at that. Uh, they've been saying, even when, when Obama first ran for office, they're saying, oh, yeah, the Republicans are the, the, the party of the big corporations, et cetera." Uh, but meanwhile, the Democrats are getting the most donations from corporations, even back then. So they've always been. I mean, this
0: is really important for people to know. I mean, g- g- carry on, please.
1: Right. Yeah, it's a huge ruse. Um, they've always been a, a part of the corporations. They have their hands all over the place. Uh, They get all kinds of donations from Wall Street. Wall Street typically would uh, place their bets on both parties. So they donate to both. But Democrats usually would get a little bit more. Um, And I think you're seeing this big shift of corporations kind of going more towards the left because they it used to be that the left was calling them uh, racist. They don't care about people, et cetera. They're really concerned about that. Uh, I think they were right about that. But now the corporation said, well, if we just say that we're into this uh, wokeism, we're not racist, uh, we promote uh, LGBT stuff, uh, we like uh, the homosexual agenda, et cetera, then we won't get bugged by these people. And so they've kind of embraced that. And now the fake news media- So it's kind of greenwashing. Right, exactly. They just kind of changed their messaging. So they're still doing the same exact things, but they changed their positions on things and they actually started having a voice. It used to be, you didn't hear a whole lot of- uh, political talk from these corporations. Um, it was usually you know, just in board meetings, they'd have their talks about things, but they weren't outwardly expressing any kind of political view, but now they've somehow found it favorable to do so. And now the media is getting behind them and paying them as these great corporations where it used to be the media would attack the corporations uh, as not caring about the people, putting profits over people, et cetera. The whole messaging has changed and kind of gone in alignment towards that wokeism. And then also you're seeing a unprecedented collaboration between these corporations and government. For example, Big Tech, uh, Facebook was coordinating with uh, the White House, Biden administration, uh, as far as messaging goes for COVID, for example. And so, uh, and what to censor and what's what's considered misinformation. And so you're having the government working with a private company to choose what to censor and what can be said.
0: Disconcerting to put it mildly. Yes. I I have a further, um, it's something I only sort of thought of pretty recently, and that is effectively since, especially 2008, but I guess it goes back to the early 2000s and and the tech crash, but particularly 2008. So for every major financial, and they're always financial, not necessarily economic. I mean, the the economic aspect follows on from the financial. And I say this as a financial someone with a financial background myself. Um, for every major financial crisis, and they're perpetual. I mean, every month that you know, whatever the Fed says, the the world is on the brink of of a collapse uh, because the the fear of an interest rates rising by 25 basis points could potentially destabilize everything you know but as these financial crises have occur with greater frequency and with much much wider and deeper ramifications i.e they are riskier government has had to step in and if you look at the fed's balance sheet as a sort of uh, denominator for the level of government interference we've just put it over in the hands of the guys at the federal reserve then you can see how corporate interests suddenly becomes very involved with politics because politics effectively determine you know the expenditure the treasury um, and of course how the fed reacts so there's a survival and continuation of of a of an ever growing rescue package you know whatever support mechanism that exists, inflating asset bubbles and so on and so forth, they're now beginning to converge and are becoming inseparable because they're mutually reliant upon one another. Or, or rather, the, the corporate world certainly has become reliant upon government intervention—constant, perpetual government intervention. It wasn't meant to be like that.
1: Yeah, I think that makes them also take bigger risks that they normally wouldn't because they know. If it fails, they have that safety net of the government there to help them out. Uh, we saw this with the airlines during the uh, lockdown, uh, so-called pandemic, um, airlines were getting bailed out. We saw in 2008, the big banks got bailed out. Um, I know, uh, I think it was the energy companies, some of the energy companies got bailed out as well. And so, yeah, you're right. I think uh, that's kind of this unholy union happening between government and the big corporations. Not just big tech, but companies in general, where they know, well, if we fail or we we embrace this uh, woke ideology, uh, we'll be taken care of because we know so and so in office. And pivoting,
0: uh, talk to me also about uh, the military aspect or the defense security aspect, and uh, and your term, you know, constant wars that you used earlier on.
1: Right. Yeah. So it seems like. Um, Military contractors have a lot to gain when there's war um, because they fund, they give weaponry, they provide personnel. And so if there's no conflict happening, they're not making any money. And so when they get uh, in with uh, candidates and uh, people holding office, uh, it benefits them greatly to push uh, towards a war to uh, whether it's a short-lived conflict Uh, drone strikes, whether it's a large extended occupation like we saw in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, they stand to benefit greatly. And I'm talking millions and millions of dollars. And so that seems to me and many other Americans that uh, a big uh, impetus for a lot of these conflicts and perpetual wars is the military industrial complex, which is just making obscene money out of these conflicts.
0: Yeah, and with the gravitational pull towards cyber war and cyber threats of course that serves uh, a particular industrial segment very well
1: too and to add on that uh, recent events with the afghanistan withdrawal uh, i think a lot of national populist-minded folks agree with getting out of afghanistan Mm -hmm. it's the way that we left that we don't agree with Uh, you don't abruptly leave you don't leave american troops behind and you certainly don't leave uh, billions of dollars worth of weaponry for the enemy you've been fighting for decades, uh, for them to enjoy and possibly use against you in the future. So that was a huge boondoggle. Um, we we agree with the idea of, of getting out of there, but it certainly could have been done so much better. And I think under President Trump or someone similar, it would have been done much better. Um, so that was just a huge disaster. But we do agree with getting out of all these countries in the Middle East. And, not, and being more non-interventionist.
0: Yeah, and as you said earlier on, when you had your sort of conversion from, from a, a pro-Obama to, to one that questions it and then, uh, you know, abjectly disappoints it, uh, I mean, he made the same promises and it was a dramatic escalation all the way through. So the, the differentiation between... What you, what you say and what you do is, uh, I mean, it's a classic political um, issue, isn't it?
1: Right. Yeah. And for, for your European audience, uh, I went and visited Portugal uh, when I was 18, and uh, I heard people saying, oh, you're from Texas, the land of Bush. We're not very fond of Bush. He's doing all these wars. He's a war guy. We don't like that. <laughs> Fast forward to Obama, didn't hear any of that. He's not a war guy. He gets a Nobel Peace Prize. Meanwhile, he's very much a war guy. He did, uh, I think he bombed seven different countries. Um, he perpetuated the wars that were under uh, under President Bush. Um, he was much more of a war president than Bush. He just made it look good to the media. Uh, and I'm not sure if the European audience was aware of that because they probably didn't see any coverage about it. Even here, we didn't see a whole lot of coverage about uh, seven different countries being bombed under Obama. You'd have to go to More alternative news sites or conservative news sites to see it, and um, yeah, it's just ever continuing. And people would want you know, people may wonder, well, why is that? Why are we still there? Why are we bombing these countries? We shouldn't have anything to do with them. They're not doing anything to us. And I think it's because those military contractors stand to gain a lot. And that leads
0: then to international organizations such as the UN and WHO and and so on. You 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 have a you have a policy on those too.
1: Yes, um, I think a lot, of, particularly a lot of Europeans, didn't like President Trump uh, mainly because he was a America First na- national populist, where he put the country first and didn't want to get ripped off in NATO and through the UN. And so he was seen as this, this mean guy who, you know, didn't uh, didn't want to keep the same program going on, keep America giving. Uh, uh, more than their share he wanted to be more fair and so i think he got a lot of unfair uh, press coverage particularly in europe about that but uh he's basically just doing right by the american people and putting his country first representing his country in the same way that an attorney would represent their client putting their best interests first
0: yeah it's a good analogy i i I remember Listening to an academic, I think he's from Stanford. I forget his name now, and he made a kind of analysis where he tried to explain. So he was coming under attack when Trump was saying he wanted to um, reduce the um, the contributions towards NATO and the UN and so on and so forth. And uh, and he tried to put a um, yeah put an explanation to it, what it was that he was getting at. And he said the following, which actually resonates a lot with me. He said, "Once you establish." An institutional apparatus. And this is what he was saying, you know, Trump has had effectively communicated. And once you fund it, it becomes permanent and it gains an interest of its own. And it's it becomes almost like a cancer cell that it wants to grow. So a bureaucracy is very dangerous. Up up to a point it serves its function if it's controlled by. Um, by, you know, legislation and laws and and governing principles, et cetera, et cetera. But if it starts feeding on itself, it just wants to keep growing. And once it becomes a career objective for many people uh, and it starts paying better salaries than you would get domestically, it attracts more talent and more talent is ambitious. So they want more resources and now it has a it has a life of its own that doesn't any longer serve what it was originally established to do but rather has become an an organisation of 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 its own interest made up of ambitious uh, smart people and this was his argument that this was the point we have to be careful building these international behemoths because they are now so separates it from the people and the interests that they were supposed to serve, um, that there's been a complete segregation. I thought that was a very smart way of looking at it.
1: Yeah, that's spot on. Um, Well, That's well known here too. Um, Any any governmental agency you start, you'll never get rid of it. Um, They'll do well at first, but then you get more people in there, it's paying pretty decently. The people running it obviously want to continue it, so if there's uh no problem for them to solve, it's uh it's an issue for them, so they'll try to help make problems to solve. Uh, like you said, the ambition will be there. Um, we saw that with the uh, Environmental Protection Agency. I was just going
0: to mention the EPA, yeah, go on.
1: Under Obama, it grew tremendously, I think, it became a Leviathan. Um, they started uh, trying to uh, what was it uh, regulate navigable waters, and they would find people who owned land out in Texas, middle of nowhere. They had a, a small lake there. Now that's being regulated. Um, they found a, a turtle that's uh, endangered or something. So now they get to go on your property and check on it periodically. Um, there's a beetle somewhere. So now you can't build a an endangered beetle. Now you can't build on that area of the property. It must be preserved and marked off. And so what started as what may have been good intentions um, have just uh, snowballed into being this, this monster of an agency. And I know President Trump dialed it back a little bit. But will we ever get rid of that agency? Probably not. I think America will fall before you could get rid of one of those agencies.
0: I have another anecdote. Um that's now that you mentioned the EPA. Are, are you familiar with Victor Davis Hansen? Uh at, not at too Stanford? Much. Otherwise, I recommend everybody who's listening to this who wants to understand uh US politics to to just read and watch as much as you can by this guy. Um he He's, he's not only a very prominent uh, academic with a specialization in, in uh, history of war and, and classics, so ancient Greece, he's very highly respected. He's also a third or fourth generation farmer in California. And, uh, and as a result, he's, you know, he's, he's, they've built up the land and they farm the land. He's a very unusual academic. I can't think of any others like that. And he was describing how the EPA works. So he was interviewed by, uh, I can't remember whether it's the Washington Post or the New York Times or, or, or one of those. And, um, and of course, they are attacking him because who doesn't like the environment? And surely we should regulate the environment and a protection agency for the environment. I mean, what possibly could be wrong? And, you know, at the surface, any, any normal thinking person would agree. So here's the thing. So he said, California is the most um, red, sta- I mean, it's, it is entrenched Democrats, right? It's, it's, as, it's, as, it's as blue as it gets. So I think I said red before, didn't I? Um, and uh, and has, has been so always. And it, um, the EPA is, is particularly powerful there. He said, when he was a child, they used to go fishing for fresh salmon in the rivers. You cannot drink the water, you will die. This is 20, 30 years of EPA. He said, we've owned this land for three or four generations. If I try and put up a fence, I will have a guy from the local administration at my doorstep the very next day, either giving me a fine or telling me to tear it down. And if I tell him it's my property and I'm trying to protect it from hyenas or... Rabbits, or whatever it may be, they will tell him, too bad. When he then points to the community of illegal immigrants, of which there was a sort of part of this caravan that has settled and had lived there for over a year, uh, and said, what about those guys? You have infectious diseases, especially amongst the children, but that we've never seen in this country since the 1800s. And it's not good for the environment. What are you going to do about that? And he sh- they shrugged their shoulders and said, we can't do anything about that. And that's, for me, that just crystallized that all these regulations hit people who want to live by the law because he says, I cannot afford to go to prison because I will be, I'll lose my job, for example, you know, and I can't farm the land and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas for them, it matters not in the least. And so the regulations are overburdening those people who are contributing and they're losing their freedoms in the process. And these regulations take absolutely no account of private property, how you farm the land, your experience and knowledge of it. It's, it's made a bit like we're talking about international organizations at a great distance without any appreciation or understanding. Uh, of how it actually works on the ground. Sorry, that was a long detraction, but it was just this EPA talk reminded me of this.
1: No, you're exactly right. It becomes less about protecting the environment becomes more about control, keeping their jobs, um, solving these, uh, alleged problems that they make up or they see, um, you can see it with the CDC as well, center for disease yeah. control. They're not a legislative authority. They're not allowed to make laws. Yet they're pushing out these uh, guidance procedures, which somehow are being treated as law and we have to follow them. And so it's, uh, you have governors in these uh, blue states enacting these policies and, and justifying it by saying, well, the CEC recommends it. And so the CEC is basically acting like le- a legislative body in a way, uh, but frankly, it's just about control. And the governors in these blue states are more than happy to uh usurp, usurp that control and uh wield it very very generously but
0: who's who's there i mean they they can't all be bad um uh you know we can't all be swamp creatures as they say i mean there must be some some good guys amongst them i, I mean some of the some of the names that have stood out for me uh, and I'm sure you as a as a lawyer will appreciate Ted Cruz I remember he was the only one who really tried to use constitutional law to uh, have a proper revision uh, at, after the presidential election uh, he is now supposedly being treated as a terrorist at least there are rumors that they want to create legislation that anyone who questioned the election is effectively supporting the insurrection on the 6th of January and therefore is a domestic terrorist. So there must be some people in Washington, there's uh, Jim Jordan, uh, Gates, in, well, he's on the local level in Florida, but I mean there are some names that stand out that seem to still have uh, a sense of um, constitutional rights and the way power should be devolved.
1: Right, uh, absolutely. Uh, Ted Cruz is great. Uh, Jim Jordan, Ron Paul, uh, yeah. Uh, Matt Gates. Uh, probably one of the top ones is represent, uh, Congressman Paul Gosar. Uh, we've hosted events with him uh, through RNR. Um, Josh Hawley. He's great as well. And so there are definitely some some warriors out there fighting for the uh, national populism and for the people. Um, and hopefully, we're hoping this next Congress next year will be elected the most America-first national populist candidates ever, and we need that win desperately because if we don't have a huge win, I think that'll probably be it uh, for conservatism. Uh, I think. I, uh, but on that note, I mean, there, there was an election, the governor in
0: in Virginia. Is is, is that a hopeful one or um, maybe maybe just talk for for anyone who doesn't know what what happened.
1: Sure, that was an ex- extremely great win and uh, a resounding message to the establishment. Uh, Virginia was known as a blue state. Now, uh, it used to be red a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, sure. but um But basically, people were saying, "Well, uh, Youngkin is running on—he was the uh, Republican, right? The Republican. He's running on a very conservative platform. You can't win that way in Virginia. That's what people, were, the pundits were saying. You know, there's no way he's gonna win. He's fighting against critical race theory. Uh, he's fighting against the disillusion of gender. He believes there's uh, male and female, uh, you know, all these radical Republican ideas. Uh, he needs to be more moderate. Uh, and his opponent, who's a Democrat, is saying, uh, you know, critical race theory doesn't exist. It's not being taught. but also we can't ban it. Um, and so this people thought that the Republican Yunkin was going to lose badly. He had a a huge victory there, and I think that is uh, optimistic in the sense that uh, people who may have voted Democrat didn't really, weren't politically active, but they just thought, uh, kind of how you mentioned the the general idea that, oh, the Democrats are looking out for me, they're not about these big uh, corporate interests. I think they're kind of waking up to that, and they showed up at the polls and gave that message to establishment. And even if there was some, Shady things going on with the uh, the poll workers, like we saw during the presidential election. Uh, it was just so overwhelming that the people voted for Youngkin. That that to me seems very indicative that uh, future elections will take that same that same pattern.
0: And by the way, uh, I may be wrong, but that state supposedly, uh, well, officially, it was won by 10 percent uh, by biden and somehow six months later it overturns completely seems uh seems strange that biden should really have won by that much doesn't it yeah
1: it's kind of odd to, to any thinking person makes you makes you wonder does indeed
0: well i think we we covered a lot and um there's plenty more to go but i think we we want to, we want to really talk about the Trump presidency in more detail because I think it's been so um misrepresented we've used that word a lot today um and people are very misinformed uh, about what happened and then we want to also talk about this new conservatism, what that is, but that is at least a whole hour on its own so um, I think we've done a pretty good job, or you've done a pretty good job today.
1: I, I appreciate it. I'd like to also get into kind of our international stuff with R&R as well. I think uh, your audience would appreciate that.
0: Absolutely. Um, yes, because you are part of it, maybe just as a sort of closing teaser for the next one, um, because you are a l- larger and growing group of European parties that um, have many similar views and policies as you do isn't that right
1: yes we've seen unprecedented uh elections in uh, different european countries that are very national populist and in line with us so i think they're also sick of the establishment over there
0: Mm -hmm. and you're forming an association or or you're at least court i don't know if you're coordinating but you're meeting and attending the same conferences and building some sort of relations across borders right
1: so through R&R, we've had uh, international panels at CPAC. Uh, we've also connected uh, members of European parties. CPAC being... populists. Oh, yeah. The, the large conservative conference uh, happens uh, annually, used to happen in Maryland. Recently happens in Florida. I think it's going to stay in Florida for foreseeable future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good place to be for a conservative conference. Um, and so, yeah, we've hosted uh, international panels um with folks who align with the national populist vision i think we have a lot we can learn from these european parties who've been uh, having a national populist government for much longer than we have and so we we help uh, connect them to republicans over here Uh, we help set up meetings with republicans here so we can have some kind of coordination because it's a global movement in the sense that um, we believe that every country should put their people first in doing so you can cooperate with other countries to fight against globalism and the nefarious tactics of the left.
0: Well, Mark, thank
1: you very much. My pleasure. It's been great. I look forward to the next one.